he's like a broom. Uh, he's like a, a, a guy who sweeps the floor. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, Doc. Uh, are you telling me that you built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? The way I see it, if you're going to build a time machine into a car, why not do it with some style? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Style Guide podcast with your hosts, Dave Morris and Stephen Orr. How are you today, Steve-O? I'm doing fantastic today, Dave. How about yourself? I am excellent. And today we are talking about Back to the Future, possibly the greatest trilogy ever made. I did put the word possibly in there just in case there's some people out there that disagree, but I think you and I more or less agree. It is such a wonderful trilogy, set of movies, experience, whatever you want to call it. Whatever you want to call it, yeah. it is, uh, And it is the trilogy that I watch every year on November, or, uh, November 12th, which is the day that Marty McFly goes back to the future. Uh, on November 12th, 1955. And uh, so I, I celebrate it and watch all three movies every year. So I know those movies backwards and forwards. I could probably quote the whole movie backwards. Whereas I like the movies like a regular human being and, and watch them again from time to time, but don't know them enough that I could have been one of the actors in the film. So Yes, and I could have been one of the actors. I should have been one of the actors. No, you would have made you would have made a good uh, Bifford Tannen. Uh, I hate you right now. So, uh, Back to the Future. Where do you want to start, Steve? Oh, you want to start? Uh, you want to start with the the movies? You want to start with the the concept of the trilogy? Do you want to start with the casting, the writing? Where do you want to start? Ah, uh, let's let's start with the the trilogy itself and and the the way that it's put together. Yeah, so uh, as as we spoke about in our episode on trilogies, it is a trilogy where the first one was made, and because it was so successful, they were signed on to do a two and a three together. And when you watch the movie, the trilogies, you do see that you do you can tell that the first one is totally complete, even though there's that little tag at the end where Doc comes back in a flying DeLorean, where we're going, we don't need roads. Uh, that was intended just as sort of a joke at the end there. And then it has a to be continued, but that was added in post uh, after they signed on to make the trilogy. And and it clearly shows, I mean, not particularly in the first movie, but in the second and third, that they they were doing something a little bit different with those movies than they were with the first. Yeah, in the second and third, you see much more uh, the second movie setting up things that are going to happen in the third movie, like we do... We set up the whole idea of Marty being called a chicken in the second movie. We set up the idea of Buford Mad Doc Tannen in the second movie. So that when Doc goes back to the Wild West, all of those things are, are easier to uh, implement. Exactly. And it's I don't believe in the first movie we have any sort of indication that the Doc is a lover of the Wild West. Not at all. No, they do talk about it in the second one, though. Yeah, because because it's much more explicit about what they're doing, and though two and three connect together uh, very clearly, whereas one and two or one and one two and three don't necessarily connect in the same intentional way. I mean, we do see the same jokes replicated and that sort of stuff, and they do a great job of picking up stuff that they left in prior movies. But certainly, it the the two and the three connect together more strongly. 
Yeah, and the first one, like this is this is the thing I love about Back to the Future. Um, in the first movie, uh, everything is set up so well in the beginning for the end, right? So, uh, and I believe in the writing process when Robert Zemeckis and the other guy, Bob Gale, Bob Gale, they were, they would like kind of write down on like cue cards like what they wanted Marty to do, uh, like they wanted him to invent skateboarding, and so then they had they added a scene where Marty invents skateboarding. And then they were like, oh, well, then that means that somewhere in the beginning we have to show him skateboarding. And then they wanted him to invent rock and roll. So then they, in the beginning they had to have a scene where he was, you know, trying to be in a band or something. And so they did this with the whole writing process of the film. So when you watch like the first 20 minutes of the movie, you can see everything that is going to happen in 1955 set up so nicely. This whole idea of. If you put your mind to it, you can accomplish anything. And uh, that Marty's in a band, that he's a skateboarding kid, that you know Doc stole a bunch of plutonium, like everything you sort of see set up. And that's what's so beautiful—not even just about the first twenty minutes, but the first minute and a half of of the film, with the opening Ugh. sequence of the clocks that tell you everything that's going to happen, but but do it in in a way that is so subtle and careful. Where I mean, we we see things like the the film camera. And and we don't we don't know the significance of that until suddenly the significance of it becomes clear that Doc had to leave the film camera at home so that Marty could go get it so that Marty could be there and it's this this wonderful little opening that is not even remotely replicated in two and three. Yeah, and like the it goes even further with the the ticking clocks like like just first of all the first thing you hear is the ticking of clocks. This movie is about time. And then it shows all these clocks, and not just clocks, but clocks from different eras, different time periods, old clocks, kitschy clocks, new clocks, like all different kinds of clocks sort of showing you like, this is about time and history, like the time travel, essentially. And there's even a great clock. I don't know if you noticed it. Uh, every time I watch it, I notice and I kind of smile. There's one where on the, the minute hand, there's a person hanging off of it. Yep. And it's like, oh, that totally happens at the end of the movie when Doc falls on the clock. It's like, and it's like, oh, it's perfect. The minute hand's even in the right spot for that. But, uh, and there's uh, there's even like a clock that is, I don't know if you notice this one, uh, that's ticking backwards. Oh, I didn't notice that. It's reversed. And so the clock goes the other way. So it's like all these little hints, just like like the whole movie nicely laid out and the news report about the missing plutonium and the Libyan terrorists and like... All the different inventions, sort of setting up the docks and inventor, and like everything in that first sequence is great. The dog named Einstein, you know, like they they set up everything that you need to know in that first minute and a half. You're totally right. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and even little touches like the framed uh, newspaper of the dock mansion or Brown Mansion destroyed, right? Yeah, failed inventor. Yeah, yeah. and it 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 tells you so much in that opening sequence. Uh, right down to Marty dropping his skateboard and it hitting the uh, plutonium case, right? Like just yeah. everything you need to know is told visually in, in that opening little bit. And what I particularly like about it is that it's very much like uh, the way Shakespeare's plays open in that, yes, this is all important information and very useful for understanding what's going to happen. And yet, you don't need to hear it. You don't need to see it because the film is going to explain all of this to you. Even though you're, as it goes on, yeah. yeah, your understanding is definitely going to be better if you are carefully watching that opening sequence. But you don't have to. 
Yeah. And so what the first movie accomplishes with this sort of like everything in the first minute and a half and then everything in the first 20 minutes is nicely setting up the whole rest of the movie. Two and three, which were made together, two is spent mostly setting up what's going to happen in three. Yeah. And in both cases, I think it works uh, incredibly well. And I think actually one of the the things that they <laughs> that Robert Zemeckis regrets is that he had to, I think I said this when we talked about trilogies, is that because he ended the first one with that little joke about Doc coming back from the future um, <laughs> and like in a flying DeLorean, it meant that the second movie had to start with them in the future. And he totally would not have done that if uh, if he knew he was going to make a sequel. But he didn't. He just finished a movie and then put a little joke at the end. But they wanted a sequel, so he had to go into the future now. And the future sequence, I think, is, is highly criticized. Because here we are. We're in 2015, of course. And we don't have power laces. And we don't have incredible 3D technology. I mean, we're getting there, but we don't. We don't have hoverboards, like flying cars, all that stuff. And it's highly criticized. But what I think is so beautiful about it is that it is clearly a period future. It's the future of 1985. Well, and, and that's exactly it. That's, that's what's so lovable about that future, is that he wasn't trying to say, this is what the world is probably going to be like in 30 years. He, he said, I'm going to take 1980s mentality and just throw extra technology on top of them. And so we, we get this, this really fun version of the future. Yeah, and that it it is clearly fun. Yeah, a fun and playful version of the future. Like none of it was meant to be predictive in any way. Not not like sort of hard sci-fi. He was just like, yeah, this could be the future. That'd be fun. Well, and and the funness of the future is so important for setting up the dystopia of the present. Right? When when Marty travels back to 1985 and and it's Biff's city now. Yeah, the alternate 1985A, the alternate 1985. Yeah, and it's so important that we have this fun, kind of carefree version of the future so that the dystopia is even worse. For sure, yeah. And that's something something I love about the movies as well, is that they were made in 1985. Well, the first one was. But it was made as a period piece to 1985. Uh, unlike just a movie that was made to be just in present day, they they really laid on hard, this is the 80s. So that when you travel through time, you see the distinction between all the different time periods. Uh, but what the side effect of that is, is that you can watch it now, and it doesn't feel old. It feels like it was made to be like a 1980s period piece. Yeah, and... It, it takes a lot of the, the, the fun things about the 80s, like, like the, the music and, the, and skateboarding and, and the experience of school, and, and really does an attempt to magnify them so that they are, they're hyper-real almost. It's, it, it's not a version of the 80s that anyone actually lived, just like the version of 2015 isn't a version that anyone is going to live. Yeah, and even like the 1955 is pretty laid on hard that it's 1955. And it's kind of this idealistic 1955. Whether or not anything was actually like that, who knows? Yeah, and then we see that again in the third one when we, we travel back into the Wild West, where, again, not it's not meant to be the real Wild West. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's this ideal Wild West world. But uh, the period piece element of it, I think, is what makes that such a timeless film. Haha. <laughs> timeless um and then you can you can still watch it 30 years later 
and it's still good. And it still holds up and it doesn't feel like it's gotten stale or old or weird. You know, like it still fits nicely into the world today. Well, yeah, it, it does in in the sense of w- when it's taking place and and what we're seeing. Although I think one of the things that was most striking for me in my rewatch this week was some of the plot points seem way out of touch with the world now. Oh, really? Okay, yeah, sure. Let's talk about some plot holes in Back to the Future because I think I think the plot in Back to the Future is is a wonderful story, and I think it, they they do a great job of telling a story and allowing some things to go left unexplained just for the just because it doesn't really matter, and they just want to get the story told really well. Uh, so I'm 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 excited. Let's talk about the plot holes. Though, what do what do you think? What do you think's wrong? What do you think? I I know one that I think is huge. Well, but I want to hear yours. Well, I mean, it, it's not so much even that particularly I'm talking about the plot holes. It's it's that I'm talking about the things that that don't fit with our version of the world today and we would have a hard time supporting in a movie from from our from our hero. So things like one of the one of the key moments in the first movie is Marty is going to make a move on his mother in a very rapey way. Yeah, it and like uh well it's that it's like an Oedipus type thing, you know, like he's he he needs to to like he yeah he has to kiss his mouth basically yeah but it's 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 made clear that like it it's made clear that it's not a matter of consent and that the whole point of it it's is that it's not consensual so that his dad can come in and save the day and i had just just the experience of going oh wow i forgot that it was that cringy right because that's not heroic at all even even if the yeah. end is 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 a good end, it's still like, geez, man, not not yeah. that wouldn't fly uh, in twenty fifteen. But I think they do, like, because because George McFly is like, wait a minute, you're gonna, t-, and he's he's acknowledging that it's a terrible thing that Marty's going to do, uh, and Marty's like, listen, don't worry, don't worry about it, it's gonna be fine. And then they of course redeem it when he gets there and he can't do it. Yeah, and and, and she's the actually like the the drinker and the smoker and you know, has parked with boys and cars and stuff, and he's, like, in shock. Yeah, no, I, I, I think you're right in that regard. It just, it, it's one of those things where I just, I, I you, you forget, that, like, when you're watching The Mighty Ducks, and you're like, oh, yeah, this movie's a little bit racist. <laughs> yeah, you know? sure. And it just, you... Much back to the future, and you're like, whoa, Marty was going to make a move on his mom, like, like aggressively. Yeah. Well, and then Biff does. And then Biff does, yeah. And, and that's like, what? That makes him the worst bad guy in the whole movie. Oh, yeah, certainly, certainly. And he goes from just being a bully to being somebody who you want terrible things to happen to, certainly. Yeah, being an actual criminal, which makes it when that George punches him out, everybody is, like, cheering and happy. Yeah, which is why it's even better when he is in the in the present. He is the basically the slave to the McFly family. Yeah, and everyone's okay with that. Yeah, you're fine with it because it Biff totally <laughs> deserves that. Yep, in every way. But talking about uh, more plot holy things, what are, what are you thinking about when, when that comes up? Uh, so the biggest one that I have thought of many times that I have justified to myself over the years, but uh, every once in a while I come back to it and I'm like, yeah, they just don't even bother explaining that. And like, we're just supposed to make sense of it. How are Doc and Marty friends? <laughs> How does that make any sense that a crazy old scientist and a teenager 
have become friends. It's just stated as a fact. Marty knows that he keeps a key under the mat. Marty and him, like, are they hang out, I guess? I don't know. What do they do together? Like, it's never explained. It's never talked about. And we're never told how they met. So the justification I tell myself is some sort of time travel paradoxical situation where Doc knew that Marty was going to be a time traveler because he traveled back in time and, like, Marty had traveled back in time to tell him, but that only happens after the first time he goes back in time. So it doesn't make sense that they would have ever become friends in the first place and this whole chicken and egg thing. So, yeah, it's definitely like this. How how are they friends? Well, I mean, I've always... I've always thought that it has to do with the fact that Marty, you know, Marty has been told about crazy Doc Brown his whole life. And and Marty's whole thing is not not doing what people tell him. And so, you know, avoid Doc Brown turns into, oh, well, you know, I want to see what he's up to. And that is also a good justification. The other justification, Doc has an amplifier in his house that he lets kids plug into and play guitar anytime they want. Oh, well, and and see, the like, the best part of it is, is that, I mean, there is very clearly uh, uh, a strong friendship between them. It's it's not too, they weren't just casually thrown together in this, uh, in this, yeah. like, they've been friends for a while. And so yeah. you have to believe <laughs> that, like, 14-year-old never... Marty or something was hanging out with this, you know, however old, old man Doc is. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's so weird. It's the weirdest part of those movies. That often just goes totally unquestioned, goes by, no problem, whatever. Yeah, they're friends. Okay, I get it. Yeah, well, and I, and I think you just have to let it go because it's, I mean, otherwise you're just like, it's just weird. I don't get it. Yeah. But other than that, I think the plot holds together really well under scrutiny. Yeah, and particularly the first film mo- most certainly mm-hmm. does. When there, there's, no, there's no particular part of it where you're going, no, I don't, I don't really buy it. I mean... One of the weird things is that it's certain that Marty changed the past. Like that we we know that he did that in 1955. That's why 1985 is different when he returns. But it's not exactly clear why the doc's life didn't change in any way whatsoever from this experience. Well, it did in one very important way. Well, yeah, he he decided to wear a bulletproof vest. But, yeah, exactly. but you have to like you have to think like that Doc's life would be changed more radically from this one major incident where he realizes that time travel is real. Like and and there are a couple and ways that's... of justifying it. One of them is that Doc doesn't want to change the future, so he treats it as if it never happened. Yeah. Or the other one is that this is always what was supposed to happen. Yeah, and that's the sort of paradoxical thing I get into with their friendship is that I I imagine their friendship is because Doc n- had met Marty in the when he went back in time and yeah. so intentionally went and became friends with him in 1985. Yeah. Whereas that doesn't make sense the first time through unless Marty was always meant to go back in time and change the future, in which case that would have already happened so... Marty never would have grown up in that 1985 that we see at the beginning of the movie where his parents are like, you know, his dad's a nerd and Biff bullies him and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, it it does get into that weird, uh, which you run into with just about any time travel movie where uh, a paradox seems like it could destroy the continuity of the movie. But Well, in fact, a paradox, what it does is it unravels the very fabric of the universe, (laughs) according to Doc Brown. (laughs) 
Or, as it turns out, it just makes two people faint. Yeah, it's true. Either, either, or, or they could just be shocked and pass out. <laughs> like, oh, well, great. Yeah, that's a great line though. When when Doc's like, oh, you can't. Yeah, if you don't get there, you're gonna miss the light, clock, the lightning at the clock tower, and you're not gonna get in 1985. We're gonna have a major paradox. And Marty says, "Wait a minute, a paradox? Is that one of those things that can destroy the universe?" <laughs> Which is so funny in a time travel movie. Just to talk, just to say the sentence, "A paradox can destroy the universe," in this way. That's like, listen, people watching this movie. We know time travel movies have paradoxes in them. It's not actually going to destroy the universe. Just calm down and enjoy the film. You know, like that's how I've always read those moments uh, of like, just relax. It's fine. The movie still works. Well, and that's the thing. Like the consequences in the movie are always small consequences. It's it's never really rooted in the universe is going to end if we don't do this. It's Marty's not going to be born if his parents don't get together. It's it's yeah. the fact that Marty's kids turn out to be, you know, criminals, those sorts of m- more personal plot points rather than the entire universe is at stake here. We, you know, continually raising the stakes. I mean, you're right. It is almost passingly referenced as a joke. Yeah. In order to say, ah, that's not what we're focused on. Go watch another movie if that's what you'd prefer. A movie from the year 2000. And and uh, I think they, they just sort of embrace the paradox of time travel in the film and have a lot of fun with it. Like the, the scene in Back to the Future 2 uh, where he's at the prom again and we're seeing it from another perspective. And it's like we see him climbing over himself playing the guitar while everybody's dancing and he drops the sandbags on the bullies and like all that kind of stuff where we see scenes from the previous movie in the next movie is f- phenomenal. It's just so much fun. Like it's nothing but pure joy watching that scene and just going like, "Oh, that's so that's totally from the first movie." Like everything you want from a sequel is in that moment. And that's the thing. Like the both the second and the third movie do that. They they replicate the same joke again and again because it works. Like yeah. they 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 are telling the same story in a slightly different way. Yeah, and they just embrace that that time travel fun. Yeah, which is why Marty, you know, wakes up in a bed three times with his mom and different version or different versions of his mom being there telling him that everything is okay and him thinking it was a dream, right? Yeah, it's like they they took the first movie and broke it down into its constituents parts, you know, and we're like, "All right, these are the ingredients for a back to the future movie." So now let's use these in different ways in the second one. And then use them in different ways in the third one, right? So they all have in them uh, a chase scene where Biff and his gang is chasing Marty, right? In the first movie, it's the the one where he runs into the manure truck. In the second movie, it's in the future where they end up on hoverboards. And in the third one, it's the horses that wrap a rope around his neck and try and hang him. <laughs> um, and so, like, that's like, you know, we need a chase with Biff and the gang. We need a moment where he wakes up with his, with his head banged and his mom is, you know... Uh, talking to him we need a moment where he walks into a cafe in a different time period and has to order something and he can't do it right uh right so like they have these ingredients uh and then they put them together in the first one they're just there and the second one they put them together in a more fun way and then the third one they twist them all on their side yeah exactly and they they've done it in such a way that that ups the stakes in them even like in in the third film marty could die as a result yeah. of his interactions with Biff. Whereas in the first one, he's going to probably get beat up by these 1950s villains. But it's it's the yeah. stakes aren't as extreme. And so they, they do a really good job of that. 
And yet at yeah, the same like time, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, you go. Well, and then at the same time, they they also show us things in in reverse order. So we started with the save the clock tower, and and then it was the the future clock tower, and then it was the building of the clock tower. And so yeah. you you get to see the same things that we know and love, but you get to see a different side of them. Yeah, and that is something they they beautifully do is that like we get to know Hill Valley really well. We see the beginnings of Hill Valley, we see the middle of Hill Valley, we see the 80s of Hill Valley, which I guess would be the present, and then we see the future of Hill Valley uh, and what it's going to become. And uh, and then we also see an alternate Hill Valley, what what it would look like. Uh, you know, Biff turns uh, Hill Valley's dilapidated courthouse into a, a, a casino, a hotel pleasure casino, palace. Yeah. A pleasure palace. Yeah. So like we see all those different versions of it, uh, which is which is great. Well, and that's why, again, that opening from the first movie is so important because, yeah, we see uh, Doc's garage warehouse, but we also see Marty skateboarding through town and mm-hmm. we see all the parts of the town that are going to be characters in the rest of the films yeah. in different ways. And so I almost wish that we had that again at the beginning of the second and third film because if you're not watching it back to back, it's easy to forget the the yeah. kind of nuances that they're going to be adding to it. Like the fact that the Pleasure Palace, that's a great point that what Biff does there is so... It's such a sacrilege to the institution that I I didn't even uh, realize that it was the same thing. Yeah, well, and they do this like lovely job of of uh, like Lou's cat diner, right? Which is the diner he goes into where they're playing Davy Crockett in 1955. In the present, it's Lou's aerobics center, and you see Marty walking by it in the background, and he waves at all those girls doing aerobics. It's Lou's aerobics, so it's the same diner. And then in the future, it's a cafe 80s and it's been changed into like this, like a uh, you know, retro place. Uh, and then in, uh, 19, in, 19, in 1885, we aren't really sure, but it's probably the bar. Yeah, it's probably the saloon. Yeah. Yeah, but we're never really sure. And same with like there's like the movie theater and the gas station that are like, you know, in the 50s, it's this really great gas station. In the future, it's this great gas station. In the present, it's just a crappy gas station. Uh, and then there's the movie theater that was playing like. Uh, a Ronald Reagan movie back in 1955. Yeah. Uh, and in the present is a porn palace playing triple X movies. And and in the future, it's Jaws 19. Exactly. Yeah. So they have this like the, the way they treat Hill Valley like a character is so lovely. And having like, you know, Mayor Goldie Wilson. And then he like he's the the he's like a broom. Uh, he's like a, a, a guy who sweeps the floor. Yeah, and then in the future, it's he's the mayor, and then in the future, future, it's like Goldie Wilson the third is the mayor, and it's like his kid, and it's just like yeah. From now on, Goldie Wilson is always the mayor, <laughs> but like they really do build this wonderful character out of the idea of Hill Valley. Well, and and if I can point to a disappointment in the third, it's that they didn't. I didn't feel they did that as much in in the the prequel version of Hill Valley. Right. Yeah. It definitely feels like it's just a Western town. It doesn't necessarily. It's it's not exactly clear that that is Hill Valley before it came to being. And part of that is some some of it's logistical. Like we couldn't have another Mayor Goldie Wilson, right? Because he wasn't 
he didn't have the opportunity to become mayor yet. But at the same time, I, w I almost wanted them to return some of those same sort of showing you, oh, oh yeah, see, see, right here, it's Hill Valley again, guys. It's this is going to become uh, this is going to become the gas station. This is going to become the whatever. And so, yeah. Well, I think I think this is this is what I love about the third movie, twisting everything. So in the third movie, the introduction to the town of like him skateboarding around uh, the, the courthouse kind of thing. In the third movie, he's being dragged by a, a horse from his neck. And it's not at all great. And then the town itself is like, we, we have that beautiful scene where he walks through the, the, the sort of like Hill Valley archways and the camera pans up. That great shot from like Once Upon a Time in the West that they just clearly rip off and just do. Because um, it's a Western, so they're ripping off Western stuff. It's great. And they, they pan over and you see like Hill Valley and then you see the town and it's just like this huge letdown. And I think that's the whole idea is that, well, yes, 1885 was not that great. And they wanted it to almost feel like it, the future was so fantastical. Let's make the West so just like boring. And there's nothing. Yeah, no, I, th I think you're right. When you put it that way, that makes uh, a lot of sense in in what they were trying to do. Yeah, just twist twist it all. Like, and that's the thing with like him waking up with his mom, the other ingredient of a Back to the Future movie. Uh, and the third one, he wakes up and he it's the great like, you're my, you're my, who are you? Because he has no idea who she is. Because this is like the old West doesn't make sense. It can't be his mom. And then it's Maggie McFly, who looks like his mom. Yeah, and 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 it's it's so fun to get to get those sorts of things, and I feel like they they honed some of the gags that they did in the second movie a little bit better for the third. Like it was a little bit weird having Marty play old Marty, his son, and his daughter, all yeah. at the same time as he's also playing Marty. Whereas in the West, it it just worked a little bit better when he was just playing uh, his great 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 grandfather something like that yeah i mean it 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 definitely takes that idea and just says what's the best part of this instead of it would be funny to have um i was going to say Emilio Estevez but i've forgotten his name the, the main character Marty michael McFly. j fox michael j fox thank you michael j fox dressed up as uh as a woman it, yeah they, well they they did do some pretty incredible technical achievements in the second movie uh, and basically invented a whole new camera technique, as far as I know, uh, with the having Marty on screen with himself. Yeah, or Biff like, on screen with himself. Or Biff on screen with himself. Like, uh, And I think the, the worst part of all of the special effects is the moment when Biff throws the almanac to himself in the car, and the almanac all of a sudden looks really clearly drawn on <laughs> um, um, but like the fact that like you see him hand an almanac to himself, like that is incredible. Like how did they do that back then? Like the, like when this was filmed and they lived like they had the almanac on like a crane being handed across, you know, uh, in one of the scenes and they had like, every time you see it, there's always like a barrier in between the characters because they needed that for like lining up the camera or something. I don't know exactly how the technical stuff works, but it was, it's, it's, it's an incredible achievement what they pulled off. Yeah, and, and that's a thing. I mean, I think the worst special effect um, that that in that entire film is at the very end of the third movie when the train is a flying train. Like, it just looks mean, it's cheesy. The, it's it doesn't, the best. <laughs> it, it, do, it doesn't quite look it, that it fits in the same way that everything else almost fit. 
even the flying cars, right? Yeah, they look pretty good. And there's that actually there's another moment where the they use the, like the the double camera thing when Seamus McFly hands young William McFly to Marty in 1885, and he hands him the baby, and right as he hands it to him, uh, Maggie McFly walks right in front of the camera. Because they needed someone in front of the camera for that moment where he hands it to himself because that's not going to be possible because <laughs> he's not there. Uh, it's just like it, when you watch it, you're like, oh, such perfect timing. Like you don't even notice it. And you, you it's it's such a such a cool little special effect. Well, and then there's just the practical effects where the makeup is so excellently done in the in the first two movies where they yeah. age and de-age people. Yeah, totally. In, I mean, what they do is they age people, but they they do it really, really well. And then in the third one, they're almost making fun of themselves the way that they de-age or they they add the uh, the mustache to to Marty's great great grandfather, <laughs> yeah. and they they make Buford, you know, just they they really just throw a bunch of dirt on his face. Like it's just yeah. really. Uh, <laughs> they they know what they've been doing in the last two movies, and they're just like, ah, this is just going to be funny. Yeah, and like in the, because yeah, in that first movie, man, like they age Leah Thompson up, and like they age, uh, what's his name? He plays his dad, um, Crispin Glover, right? So well that you're like, yeah, they look like adults. You almost forget that they aren't adults in that movie. Well, and they do two versions of their aging too. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Right, and then three they... versions of uh of Leah Thompson if you count the one in Back to Future Two. Well, yeah, and then uh, back again in the third one, right, where um, they make her her look even younger than they had her look in the first one, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. I don't know how they pulled that off. Mm -hmm. And and so the practical effects combined with the special effects really make those movies. They 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 just they really did a good job of making them timeless in how they were filmed, but also in the way that they they plotted out the story and the way that they showed the story. Yeah, and you know, um, I just want to talk a little bit more about the the things that they set up and knock down really well in the second and third movies because the first one it's all done in that first twenty minutes, but the second movie it's is is like such a setup. Like I love the the Seven Eleven joke about using guns and like playing the game. Um, playing the game. Uh, what's it called? What's the name of the game? Uh, that he plays in the Cafe Eighties. The 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 Wild West. Wild Gunman. That's what it's right. called. Right. There's Wild Gunman. Uh, and then he teaches the kids how to play it, and they're like, "You have to use your hands. It's like a baby's toy." Well, they set him up like he's like this great video game shooter. Uh, and then in the Wild West, when he does the little the little shootout thing at the fair, and he does this perfect like Wild West shootout, like they set that up really nicely. And they set up the, um, of course, they set up Buford Tannen in the first the, in the second one as well, where he sees the video of like Buford Mad Dog Tannen and all this whole like the history of him, and uh, and like set that up for the third movie as well. I just think it's such a cool like. It's such a well done setup. A lot of those. Well, and and even little things, right? Like that they they did at the end of the the first film, where they moved from plutonium to trash as the fuel for the uh, the time time machine. Yeah, the time circuits. Yeah, for the time circuits, because I mean, not even if they were going to make another movie, but to tell more stories in this universe, they kind of had to get away from plutonium, right? And so. Uh, we 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 wanted to we or they they had to in order to tell more stories give us a different way of doing that and they just took a super kind of fun future take on it 
Yeah, and because they'd already been to the future, let's use that to to push it forward. And it was also part of that joke at the end, where it's like, I need more fuel, and puts garbage in the car, um, which is uh, hilarious. It, well, yeah, and it's great. And the, and it also gets us away from one of the weird parts of the first movie, where the, the doc is is using Libyan terrorists to steal plutonium from the U.S. government. Yeah, it was like, the 1980s, man. Hey, yeah, no, totally. But still super weird that he was working with terrorists. Like Yeah. Like you have to wonder if if Marty was going to get a get a call or or have well, the government show up at his door a couple <laughs> days after the events of the movies. Like yeah. um the plutonium still went missing and you <laughs> yeah. you knew Doc really well. Well, the Libyans are the ones that stole it and they hired Doc to make a bomb for them, which is again, this is one of those funny little little Easter eggs uh in the movies. Uh, Dr. Emmett Brown gets hired to make an atomic bomb for, or a plutonium bomb for a bunch of people. And uh, he tells, makes a joke in the third one where before they moved to Hill Valley, they were the Von Brauns. Yep. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, Von Braun was one of the guys that worked on the atomic bomb. Uh, and if not the atomic bomb for America, then he definitely was like uh, one of the someone that worked on some kind of crazy uh, explosive thing. Yeah, it might have been a might have been working on the German uh, version of it. I think, but the point is, yes, that's a funny little Easter egg there that that they bring up again, and and so I like it. Yeah, it's pretty funny that he's the von Braun. <laughs> oh wait, sorry, I think von Braun. I'm just looking it up right here. He he worked on rocket technology and stuff for Nazi Germany and right. the United States, respectively. Okay. Anyway, uh, moving on. Uh, <laughs> I, I like those little Easter eggs that they throw in there. Uh, and I love this, like, um, I can't remember who did it, but someone did this whole calculation of, like, how many DeLoreans there are in 1985. Or, yeah, at, at one point in 1985, there's, like, four, De- or 1955, there's, like, four DeLoreans. There's the one that Marty first came back in. There's the one that Mar- Marty, Marty and Doc both went back in. There's the one that's from 1985 that's still hidden in a cave. And then there's the one that Biff Tannen brought from the future back into 1955. Is that right? Am I missing one? Uh, actually, there. yeah, there's even an extra one. Because, What's the extra one? Oh, wait, no. No, wait, never mind. No, I nailed it. There's four. Yeah, yeah. Although there is still a DeLorean that's uh, that's not destroyed. Right at the end of the third movie, there's still one DeLorean out there. Which one? The DeLorean that the Doc left in the cave for Marty. No, because that got found in 1955. It got found because they in... used that. They used that. That's the one that gets destroyed. Man, this is time travel weirdness. Right, because I know. that's the one that he goes back. No, but there are two DeLorean. Then there are two DeLoreans in the past. Yeah, they're in the past. They're in the past, but they all eventually get destroyed. Well, well, no, isn't it? Isn't it the case that what happens is Marty brings back a DeLorean to the Wild West, and at that point there are two DeLoreans in the Wild West. The one that the Doc is going to, the one that is going to be found by Marty, yeah, and then the other one, which is the one they u- Marty uses to travel back to 1985. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There are two in the Wild West. So, th- why don't they just go get the fuel thing from the yeah. one that's up? currently there yeah i know there, there's there is a bit of a plot hole right there <laughs> just such a weird little but but that, but that's the thing that i love about the movie because that's not what the story is about the story is about the personal relationships all <laughs> yeah, the way but down you're so to... right it is like this oh it blew well i guess we're done 
Like, well, no, there's another DeLorean. Just go get it. <laughs> yeah, just go get it. Do the same thing you did. Just but. take the time circuits from the one in, that's there and put it in the other one. There you go. You're fine. Problem solved. But again, like, that's why the third one had to be this really straightforward love story between Doc and Clara, because that's what they were building to with the with the first two anyway, right? Like, it's it's all about these personal relationships between these characters, and Doc was the only one that we hadn't resolved. Yeah, and that is something that uh, we should just spend a little bit of time talking about, is the the beautiful twist in that third movie the the like because there's lots of twists in that third movie but i think the biggest one is that doc becomes the protagonist in a way and marty becomes his advisor uh because it's about doc and clara and women and stuff and then marty is his doc when it comes to women yeah well and i mean it's it's even got that great little uh inversion where marty writes a letter to doc in order to save his life in the first movie and Doc writes a letter to Marty asking him not to save his life, right? Yeah. And so mm-hmm. it's this great little flip that we see uh, in in the end of the second movie. And I I have to say, the ending to the second movie, so awesome. So when the, when like, the yeah. DeLorean gets struck by lightning and disappears and, and Marty is now alone. And the and guy from raining. Western Union shows up. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and right down to the line, I'm back from the future. Like it's yeah. so great. That is that is one of the great things is like and, and they do such a good job of recreating that scene from the first movie where Doc is like happy with himself that he sent Marty back into the the uh future. And he goes, ha ha and he looks up at the clock tower. Because normally in the first movie at that scene where he looks up at the clock tower, it cuts and shows the clock tower that he's looking at, and then a helicopter flies by. Right, so now we know we're back in 1985. It's a beautiful cut, beautiful edit. But in the the end of the second one, he looks up, and then instead of cutting to the clock tower, we see Marty run around the corner <laughs> in yeah. his like leather jacket and inconspicuous hat, and Doc just like refuses to accept it and then faints. <laughs> it's perfect, perfect, uh, perfect Christopher Lloyd faint. Yeah, and so it's such a lovely little ending to to that film, and. And then we get to the third one where the beginning of the film has to really just explain the plot, but they do it like they, they do it so passingly and quickly that you you don't even, I mean, even if you listen to it, it, it doesn't make sense because it's not supposed to. They're just Which like, uh, at the beginning of the third movie, when uh, Marty and Doc are talking and, and In the Marty house is trying and the to Doc's explain. freaking out. Yeah. yeah and, and he's trying to explain what happened and, and it's just done so quickly, very hand wavy because it doesn't matter, right? That's he's here now and and yeah, we're going to it's, it's we're nice cuz it's story. another it's another callback to the first movie, right? The third third one does a lot of callbacks to the first movie that the second one missed, right? Because it has that moment where where Marty's trying to convince Doc of something and Doc is like, "Well, it's impossible to believe that you are here." And then he closes the door and locks himself in the bathroom. Yep. And in the first movie, Marty has to explain how he got the bump on his head and he knows how it happened and yada, yada, yada. And then the third movie has to explain how, like, this person went to the time and now it would send you back to 1885, uh, which ends with the great moment of, uh, how would you happen to know about it? You wrote me a letter. And then they jump to the reading the letter sight gag with the magnifying glass. Well, and, and but but it also does a good job. Like, the, the first movie is is the dance the second movie they they make a casual reference to michael jackson in the film somewhere uh, yeah. at, at a couple points and then the third one when we get to that great scene in the saloon where where bifford is telling him to dance he ends up doing the moonwalk right 
Yeah, and just... and, and even he's he's singing like Michael Jackson lyrics and to himself, and it's just yeah. this funny little. We know we're we're building our gags really well. Yeah, yeah, and the third one does have a lot more gags in it. Yeah, than the second one does. Like, and also, and uh, and just that line of, "What's your name, dude?" Eastwood. Clint Eastwood. What kind of stupid name is that? <laughs> yep. Yeah, uh, it's just a nice little little joke about Clint Eastwood. But it also has that great moment where he wakes up uh, that and and he has to go to the kitchen or wherever not kitchen, but he he's getting out of bed and he has to check to make sure he's wearing pants. Yeah, as he's getting be, because the experience is just replicated, right? And, yeah. But you're right, Clint Eastwood is it's it's silly, but it it. It recalls both the Calvin Klein line, but it also recalls the Darth Vader line. Yeah, and that he's just using names from that were famous in the eighties. Yeah. Yep. That's what he does. It's a period piece for the nineteen eighties. Yeah. And then all of a sudden there's a bear in a cave for some reason. Hey, something needed to make him run away and lose his boots. Yeah, and uh but yeah, like that third movie, the whole the whole fact that it follows Doc's love story, uh, I just think is is such a such a beautiful little twist and he throws me they, they he sets that up in the second one too where he's like i'm gonna dismantle the time machine and spend uh the rest of my life devoted to the other mystery of the universe women which just explains doc's entire why he's just this single old man yeah well and and the thing is like we couldn't see marty's love story because he had jennifer for starters but also because of the way that they had dealt with Jennifer, both both in the first movie and then how they'd kind of had to sweep her aside in the second one, like it there there was no room for a character for him, and so it it was clearly going to follow Doc almost the whole time. Yeah, and the third movie also has a nice twist where in the first one it's him teaching his dad, um, what he has to do, you know, and like making his dad tough, uh, and teaching his dad how to fight. And then the second one is uh, his like his son is getting bullied around, and so he has to fight for his son. Uh, and then in the third one, Marty is the one that is getting in a gunfight, and his grandfather t- tells him not to fight. Yeah, he has to learn the lesson for himself now, or be taught the lesson more properly. Yeah, and the lesson is not the same lesson he was always teaching. You know, before he was always fighting. And then the third one, it's like, no, wait, I don't need to fight. And he throws down his gun and doesn't want to shoot him, you know, and ends up fist fighting him. But, you know, the idea of like not doing the fight that he wants to fight and not playing by his rules, uh, you know, not fighting Biff by punching him. In the, like George McFly fights Biff by fighting him. Uh, Marty fights Buford by not fighting him by his rules. Which is exactly what is also set up at the end of that movie that where Marty avoids his accident with needles, right? Yeah, because he learned that he doesn't have to play by their rules. Yeah, exactly. And he was able to fix the future despite the fact that Doc wouldn't tell him the future. Yeah. And so now we know, like, and it's the moment where he says, I almost ran, I would have ran into that Rolls Royce. Jennifer realizes the future, blah, 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 was all real and yada, yada, yada. It's erased from existence. She, and by the way, I love because they're, they're, the economy of time in that movie at that point is just like, <laughs> they got to move quick. She goes instantly into accepting that the future was real, doesn't question it. We just cut to 
them looking at the DeLorean on the train tracks without the explanation that would have been yeah. time consuming. And he just told her everything. Yeah. yeah, he just told her everything and she bought it and we're just moving right along, guys. Yeah. And that brings it does bring us to like the cheesiest moment in all of the movies, which is that final scene with the train. Your future hasn't been written yet, Dave. It's what yeah. you make of it. So make it a good one. And, you know, it's like the thing with it is that it is such a it is it is how it has to end. Like, what can Doc say to him in that moment other than, well, let's keep traveling through time and changing the future in the past. Like, yeah, we can like, yeah, I, I can go into the future, find out what it is and then come back, tell you and you can change it all you want. Uh, you can't say that to him. Uh, so they need to end with something. And so I think that the, they had to go with that. Your future is whatever you want it to be. Uh, don't let future events affect your present because all the movies are about the fact that the choices you make will affect the future. But I mean, even in the first film, we have the same level of cheesiness with the with the kind of morality tale. Like you can accomplish anything if you put your mind to it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like what the doc says at the end of the third film is just another version of that. Right. Yeah. You can make your future anything you want it to be. Just put your mind to it. Yeah. And and so it is meant to be cheesy. Definitely. Um, I think it's also meant to be that third film is if they ever needed to make a fourth, they could have. <laughs> Like, if they're ever like, oh, man, I am so strapped for cash. I, I need to make a fourth Back to the Future movie. Like, they, they I said don't, I don't think they could have. <laughs> I mean, it, uh, but, but that's a beautiful thing. They couldn't have told a Back to the Future movie because everything about that third movie was concluding the Back to the Future narrative altogether. Everything that was picked up was was finally what was dropped in that third movie and let go and 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 concluded yeah and then and when the train finally flies away and you see that past present and future all tied together and it flies right into the camera and then the end comes on the screen with that unbelievable musical score like we haven't even talked about how great the music is in back to the future and how like swelling it gets and how excited and emotional you are when you hear all that kind of music um but that final it's swooping train and the da, 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 and it's like the end and you're like ah oh, so beautiful and after seeing to be continued and to be concluded after the other movies seeing the end is just like in that font is actually like somewhat moving yeah yeah well and it is and and i think you're right the the music in that is is great i mean i i love huey lewis in the news <laughs> yeah so, <sure. laughs> yeah uh, you're never going to get any question from me about but their greatness. But I think I think that it does a great job of playing with the idea of music and the different uh, the different moods and the different feelings that it was trying to uh, get throughout the film. Oh yeah, and all the different time periods too. You know, like uh, like seeing the so the 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 overall score that that like uh, bah, 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 da, 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 kind of stuff is throughout all of it. But then in the 80s, you have him playing like hardcore Huey Lewis, like but hard and like heavy metal music. Uh, and then in the 50s, you have him playing, uh, you know, Johnny B. Good rock and roll music uh, that just changed. And like you also get the band that sings Earth Angel, Earth Angel, which is also fantastic. Um, and then in the past, you get ZZ Top playing their little like kind of like a little folky music. Uh, the one thing we don't get is any real music in the future, because the future, he goes into the cafe 80s, and they just play Michael Jackson music. 
Well, yeah, and and that's another thing, right? Where it it shows that you almost wish they'd been they'd taken more time with it because they're they could have had more fun with the music. They could have in the future in the future something kind of yeah, like they 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 could have played with and and even then I don't recall anything particularly in the dystopian present either, right? Because they were moving so quickly in in that film that they almost didn't have time to really you know, settle and, and show us the a new version of that gag, the music gag. Uh, in, the, in the alternate 1985, they do have some music. There's like this rock and roll music and it's like, um, um, oh, I can't even remember how the song goes right now. But it's basically something about like, you know, like, like you know, hell's, not hell's bells, but it's like something like that. Like uh, that, then there's like a biker gang and stuff. It's like biker music. Right, right. Oh, and Mr. Sandman. Oh yeah, perfect classic nineteen fifties kind of um, score there. So I think that that brings us probably to uh, our final thoughts on the Back to the Future series. Um, yeah, I think it does. I mean, my final thoughts it's it's uh, uh, it's we we actually didn't get into lots uh, and lots of details of the stories in this podcast, but that's what my final thought is going to be more or less about is that the the story of Back to the Future and the adventure of it. I think it is one of the greatest adventure stories of our of our time. You know, uh, an adventure through time, an adventure uh, through through like one's family lineage and through the history of one's small town, uh, and you, the 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 sort of like the path that we travel goes through so many different transformations into so many different places, and through it, all these different characters change, and we see different versions of them, and we see them grow and we see their ancestry and we really do by the end of back to the future feel like we know these people and we know this town and we know uh, and we've watched them all grow and change and i think that's just like just phenomenal and for me what it what it boils down to is that back to the future is expert storytelling it's it's a master class in Taking taking your time with telling a story, but giving yourself lots of different things to work with, and 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 dropping things that you're going to pick up later, uh, again and again, like little things, like the way that Marty ends up in the past with his a tape recording of his own music, just the way that it gets handed to him from Jennifer, or the he he knows about the lightning storm because of the pamphlet that he plays pays 20, 25 cents for yeah and then other things like the the hoverboard and how how that comes up at the at the end of the third film and how how it actually saved doc's life right now the whole idea of the hoverboard comes from them picking up their offer of the skateboard chase in the previous film and we watch as it all kind of builds yeah yeah it all just it all shows that they wanted to tell a story very carefully and yet at the same time they knew to root it in the relationships between people they knew to root it in first the relationship of marty's parents but also marty's relationship to jennifer and and to his own idea of family the way that family plays out throughout the the series i think you're right is something that that is so so thoughtfully done and could go even further we could talk about all the different nuances about how marty's understanding of family have changed radically by the time we get to that the end of that movie yeah and 
and it's it, it's just it's it's expert storytelling and and that's what i love about it more than i more than i love time travel movies i love good stories and back to the future is one of the best not just adventure stories but it's just a very well told story period yeah and i think that's uh, you, you hit the nail on the head there with this like every every offer they throw out to themselves they pick up right like as an improviser i've referenced back to the future many times when i'm teaching but just like like uh like everything is thrown out there and all of it is used. No, nothing is wasted. Uh, and that's, that I think is where you're going with this expert storytelling. Like everything is perfectly used again or perfectly brought back in or perfectly tied into itself uh, and influences itself and changes the story and moves it forward. Uh, and it is a, technically a science fiction story, which I don't know. I would never think of it like that. Or I never used to anyway, uh, but it is about time travel. It is science fiction. But it's definitely fiction, and the science is, doesn't even matter. They they never explain time travel further than saying it's the flux capacitor. That's what makes time travel possible. Literally, <laughs> a picture of the letter Y is what makes time travel possible. How? Who cares, everybody? It's a movie about it's a story about a kid going to high school with his parents. Like we just want to show that story and we just need a flux capacitor. Um, and like, uh, yeah. And like, that's something we just didn't even mention is just the whole concept of the DeLorean, this 1985 car that looks super futuristic, but is not, and is used as the time machine. Like the fact that it's a moving time machine it's the first, I think it was the first ever film that had a time machine that moved. All other time machines were like stationary rooms before. Um, and so the amount, what that that gives them within the story, what that allows them to do within the story is just unbelievable. And, uh, and really does keep the story moving forward so well and forget about the whole time travel stuff. Well, and I, th I think the there's a line from the second film that really sums up my feelings of of what they were doing in 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 these three films and it's when doc says to marty i invented the time machine to get a clearer perception of our humanity where we're going where we've been yeah and and it feels like that's also a statement by the writers about what they were doing with the film they 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 created back to the future not to create a cool science fiction story and not to make a bunch to, of money yeah yeah, but to gain a clearer perception of humanity in in storytelling, and I think they did that expertly. I think so too. I think they did it perfectly, and um, and uh, yeah, your future can be anything you want it to be, Stephen. <laughs> well, uh, I think that's a, a wrap for our podcast. I will uh, I will see you next week, Dave, or last week. Oh, nice. <laughs>